If you have a Bible with you, turn to the book of Colossians. Colossians chapter 2, as we work our way through this wonderful but short book in the New Testament. As you're turning there, let me give you kind of an insight into what's going on in this passage we'll look at today. You know that horrible, nagging feeling that something's missing? You can't put your finger on it, you know something's not right, whether you're packing for a, a vacation, loading the van up, you're going through that checklist in your mind. Uh, my son plays hockey, um, which that's a lot of equipment. And you get dressed at the arena. You don't, you don't get dressed at home like you do with football, I think, um, like you do at soccer. So it's a lot of equipment. It all has to go with you. You forget something, you're in trouble. And so once a week, twice a week, I'm going through my mind trying to do the checklist of things that we need and the different socks that you can bring and whether we have the right jersey or not. And it always feels like something's missing. Now, it's a good thing when something really is missing, right? It's a good thing that we feel like something's missing because we go looking for it. We try to put our finger on it. But what a frustrating and distracting thing when you feel like something's missing and you can't put your finger on it. As far as you know, a week later, nothing was missing. Well, the Bible tells us that when we're born, we're born with something missing. Something's not right. This world is not right. It's a broken world. We're born in rebellion against God. We're not born reconciled or right with our maker like Adam and Eve were in the garden so something's missing and we feel like it right we try to ignore it right we try to think that it's something else we try to say oh it's just this I'm missing my dad I'm missing my mom I'm missing my kids my grandkids something like that but the Bible also tells us that once we come to Christ there's a sense in which nothing is missing At least a sense in which nothing is missing. No matter what else might be missing. For the Christian, there's a sense in which nothing is missing if we have Christ. If we have Christ, we have everything. So Paul's been writing to the Colossians, we've been seeing. And he's been saying a lot of different ways. You don't need something fundamentally different than what you already have in Christ. You always need more of what you already have in Christ. You need more of it. You need a fuller experience of it, a fuller realization of it. He prays in Colossians 1 for these, these Christians to grow in their understanding of Christ and the experience of the strength and nearness of Christ in the Christian life. But he keeps saying, you don't need something of a different kind. Now that you have Christ... You have everything. Jesus plus nothing is everything. And yet, you head down a path of thinking that's Jesus plus, well, fill in the blank, whatever it is. What we have at the end of the road is is not everything, not even something, but nothing. So as Paul gets specific about this false teaching that's sort of circling about the city of Colossae and the city surrounding it, we come to Colossians 2 and Paul warns them of something being taught around them that's a Christ plus something or even Christ plus many things. And he talks about the danger of it. Look at Colossians 2 starting in verse 18. He says, Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason beyond uh, by his sensuous mind, in not holding fast to the head, that is Christ, from whom the whole body, that is the church, is nourished and knit together with its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you've died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you're still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they're used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom 
in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Now, maybe you notice that phrase in verse 23, self-made religion. A great summary of all that Paul has been warning the Colossian church of that might threaten their Christ-centeredness. It's self-made. Now, if you think about our modern Western culture, self-made is usually used in a positive way. He's a self-made billionaire. That's a good thing. But when it comes to religion, when it comes to faith, things spiritual, it better not be self-made. We don't want to come up with it. We don't want it to be based on us. We want to get it from God. Now, we're all naturally very good at self-made religion. Some of us are more sophisticated at it than others. Some of us have a longer tradition of the self-made religion that we're tapping into than others. But we're all very good at being religious. And a lot of it, except the real thing we find from God in Christ through his word, is self-made. So today I want to talk about two angles to this self-made religion. And then we're going to look at the alternative, the real deal. If you notice in your bulletin, the sermon notes page, the first thing is the examples of self-made religion. And you notice there are three points there, three main points that we're looking at today. I want to warn you up front that we're going to camp out on this first one quite a bit. This point will take a lot longer than the others. Maybe 80% of the message will be on point number one. That's on purpose because Paul's talking about some complex false teachings that were a problem in the first century and not as much a problem today. Then we'll also see that they became a bigger problem about a hundred years later after Paul wrote this. And then we also need to talk about how today we have some contemporary counterparts. What kind of false teaching is Paul talking about for the, of the first century that would be relevant to what we struggle with today, where we're errant today, where we have self-made religion today? So the first example of self-made religion, verse 18, he uses this word, asceticism. That's Paul's word. Now, you might not be familiar with that word. It's actually defined in the middle of verse 23. He uses the word again, asceticism, and then he says, severity to the body. That's a pretty good short definition of asceticism. Now, in a sense, biblical self-discipline is something like severity to the body. 1 Timothy 4, 7 tells us to discipline ourselves unto godliness. Sometimes that means you don't eat as much as you want to eat. Sometimes it means you don't sleep as much as you want to sleep. Discipline is a right thing. And oftentimes the right thing is the harder thing. But asceticism isn't this. It's not biblical discipline. Asceticism, for one, presupposes a certain outlook on the whole material world. It says that the physical realm is by nature evil. And the spiritual realm is where it's at. And the more we can desert this physical realm, get outside it into higher levels of spiritual reality, the more enlightenment we have. Well, if the body is viewed as evil, like these false teachers in Colossae thought, then you can reason that to conquer the body is to starve it of its desires. They thought desire was the enemy. And so avoidance, even punishment, or even pain became this pathway to enlightenment. Now, hopefully I don't need to tell you that this is wrong-headed thinking. It's not biblical thinking. It's a cheap knockoff of the problem, the spiritual problem that plagues us, and the reality of spiritual discipline that's needed. But the Bible insists that God has made his material world good. He made all things good. Now, I know sin entered the world, and since then, creation has kind of fallen with us. There's a sense in which even the physical world is fallen 
but we would say that it's broken. We wouldn't say that in sin, now everything physical is innately evil. No, there's just too much in Scripture that tells us that, you know, sunsets are beautiful. His creation is glorious and wondrous. It's still very much enjoyable, and it's even told to us that we should enjoy it. 1 Timothy 6, 17. God richly provides us with everything to enjoy. This is not how you stop the indulgence of the flesh. That's the phrase at the end of verse 23. We'll keep coming back to it. You don't stop the indulgence of the flesh by paining your flesh. Paul also deals with this in 1 Timothy 4. I think there he's even maybe a little more clear. He says this, Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith. Here's how devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. Here's what they teach. They forbid marriage and require abstinence, see the focus on the physical, abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing's to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving. It's made holy by the word of God in prayer. You don't fight sin by denying yourself of physical pleasures. You don't fight sin by making up new rules. You fight sin in part by enjoying the gifts that God has given and to enjoy him thoughtfully and prayerfully to his glory. The second kind of teaching going on here, and cheap knockoff of the real thing, is mysticism. Verse 18, Paul talks about this false teaching which essentially worshipped angels and then they would go on about visions. Their goal, it seems, was to sort of map out a spiritual realm in order to attain a higher spirituality. So you try to chart what's going on. You try to chart where to go and who to talk to. Problem one is that they're using visions. Probably not real visions. Made up ones. Visions as the source for what's going on in the spiritual realm. They're going far beyond Scripture. Scripture is not enough. Remember, that's part of this false teaching. We've talked about it before. There was so much about, oh, well, well you know, Bible, that's, that's certainly fine. It's kindergarten. Jesus, sure, that's good. But now let's talk about how you map out the spiritual realm. I know I've had this vision. In fact, I've had 15 of them, and they would go on about them. Problem two is that there's an unhealthy focus on angels. Paul says worship of angels. He's probably not being literal when he says worship of angels. It's more likely that these false teachers were instead giving such focus, even obsession to angels as these intermediaries to help you chart the path of the spiritual realm and know where to go and how to get higher and higher. That Paul's saying it's like they worshipped angels. They didn't overtly worship angels. They didn't call out an angel by name and say, Dear Michael, I worship you. But the focus, obsession, was on these angels in such a way that it was like they worshipped them. Now, some related questions for us today. I guess maybe we should start with the obvious, the immediate parallel. Is it possible that you actually give too much attention to angels? It's not a common problem, at least I don't see, in our church and in our church culture here in America, but it's possible for us to take anything that's good, anything that's real, like angels, and to so focus on them that they become the focus. The whole thing then becomes a little sideways, a little myopic. You've got angels doing more than the Bible says that they do. Or maybe it's more general for you. It's just an unhealthy obsession with the spiritual realm. 
You know, you just want to know what's going on. And so you read books that are novels on what's going on in the spiritual realm. This angel fighting with that angel. Now, the Bible does tell us that there is a spiritual realm. That there are good and bad angels. And those good and bad angels war. But the Bible just gives us a couple of peaks of what's going on there. There's one in Daniel. Daniel's asking for help. And Michael, the archangel, says, I would have got here sooner, but I was wrestling with a a bad angel, and it took me a while. You just go, what? Can you just talk about that for the next five hours? And maybe he told Daniel more, but he didn't tell us more through his word. We just get a, a peek. The curtain got pulled back just a smidge for us to see that there's a spiritual realm there. But perhaps you're trying to map out more than what the Bible says. It's dangerous. It's dangerous. Are you okay with mystery? Are you okay with going far enough with God's word and not too far? Oh, what a balance is needed there. So many Christians don't want to go anywhere in God's word because it's going to get thorny eventually. And so, oh, it's mysterious. I don't know about this doctrine, that doctrine. Well, you just tell me what to believe. I don't know. I'm not going to dig into it and find verses over here, then find verses over there, and then try to figure out how they fit together. It's too complicated. It's all mysterious. Well, no, let's dig in God's word. Let's see what it says. Let's figure out what we can. Let's not be too quick to throw up our arms But let's not go beyond what God has said in his word. Let's let's not make up stuff that isn't there. Or maybe it's something else in your life, something of a non-spiritual, non-religious kind of thing that gets so much attention, so much obsession, that it's practically worship. Remember, Paul was critiquing these false teachers for taking something good, Something no less good than angels. I mean, who doesn't like angels? Who's mad at angels? Angels, come on! And yet they so focused on angels that they essentially turned to an idol. They essentially turned away from the Lord in a sense. I wonder if recreation could be something that distracts you from the Lord in a similar way. You're so focused on it, so obsessed with it. I wonder if kids, something so good, could become so godlike in your life that they are a rival for devotion and care with the Lord. Or maybe entertainment or buying. There are many idols in our culture and we should be watching for those often. Or maybe... Related to what's going on here in Colossae, you're just too dependent or wrongly dependent on feelings. Remember, they were going on about visions. And maybe you're not going on about visions, but maybe you trust your feelings way more than you trust Scripture. So you feel like God said to you this, and you feel like God said to you that. And when a a fellow Christian says, but wait a minute, have you considered this verse? You say, what How dare you? He said to me, I feel like God wants me to fill in the blank. Well, that would be an unhealthy rival of authority. Your feelings, which, boy, are prone to be misunderstood, prone to be misinterpreted. They cannot be in greater authority than God's word ever. Now, these things in verse 18, they would later to become known as something we call Gnosticism. I've mentioned that word before, but it's probably time to sort of explain it a little bit more, delve into it a little bit. Gnosticism comes from the Greek word gnosis, which means knowledge. So knowledge, that's a good thing. It sounds like a harmless thing. This is the study of knowledge. Yeah, but it's an approach to knowledge which said there's secret knowledge. So it went right hand in hand with this mysticism, trying to chart the celestial spiritual realm as best as you can, trying to advance up a track of higher uh, enlightenment. It went along with the, the asceticism, the physical world is bad, deny yourself these pleasures and you'll make a quicker trek up this spiritual ladder. 
Well, this kind of teaching didn't really come full bloom until 100 years after Paul wrote Colossians. So Paul has something like a seedling form of Gnosticism that he's dealing with and concerned about, not just here in Colossae, but we saw it also as he wrote to Timothy, 1 Timothy 4. Timothy's in Ephesus, not right next, but pretty close by to the city of Colossae and Of course, similar things are being taught there. But it wasn't come to be known as a whole movement of thinking and philosophy called Gnosticism for another hundred years or so after Paul. And by then, a hundred years after Paul, they're taking what they believe about Gnosticism, the things we're seeing here in Colossians 2, and now they're going to read them back into the gospel stories and rewrite the gospels. So maybe you've heard of some gospels that aren't in our Bibles and for a moment been concerned about why we have gospels out there that aren't in our Bibles. Who decided? I mean, is this, is this like a, a toss-up? Is this like a, a guess between a seven and a half and an eight and which one gets in, which one doesn't? And I mean, is it that Close or is it far apart? It's far apart. You see, these Gospels are called Gnostic Gospels. The Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Philip, the Gospel of Judas, there's a Gospel of Mary, there's a Gospel of the Lord. These Gospels took Gnostic principles a hundred years after many of the Gospels we have in our Bible were written, and then they read the Gospel principles back into the Gospel story. I'm sorry, the Gnostic principles back into the gospel story. So you have now a Gnostic Jesus. Because flesh is evil, you can't have a flesh Jesus. You've got to have a Jesus who's just a spirit. Because the physical realm is by nature subpar. You can't have Jesus making food. You can't have him eating food. You've got to have him say some weird stuff about spiritual realms, that kind of thing. The things that they have come to know later on. All these kind of gospels, these Gnostic gospels, everyone agrees they're called Gnostic gospels. They're not in our Bibles for good reason. One, because of their late date, they come not in the first generation of Christians, but in the second and third generation of Christians. And also because they espouse teachings that are fundamentally different with the rest of the New Testament. Paul has already addressed these things. 1 Corinthians 1, Colossians 2, and 1 Timothy 4. We even see a hundred years after Paul, Irenaeus, he warned his church that there were those who were invoking angels. They were doing this through incantations and other wicked, curious arts. So whether it was true in the first century or not, it may have been, but certainly by the second century, these sort of spiritual, angelic mappings resembled more a pagan seance than anything in the Bible. Now, the spirit of Gnosticism lives on a little bit. Maybe it isn't quite this pronounced. Maybe it isn't this in your face. But if you've seen any of the Da Vinci Code-like movies from Dan Brown or read his novels, that would be a form of Gnosticism. Of course, he's trying to point people back to these mysterious gospels that have somehow been left out. Anything really that focuses on a conspiracy theory within the established church. I mean, here's where an evangelical church would at least side with the Roman Catholic Church on the fact that they picked the right books, right? And so Dan Brown's critique of the monopolization, controlling of information in the Roman Catholic Church in its early centuries, we would say, no, there's some good reason for why the church said these Gnostic Gospels a hundred years after it happened are reading some bad theology into the story of Jesus. I mentioned secret societies. No matter how sinister or powerful you think they are, no matter how much you think that they control the world, every secret society by nature adopts an approach to knowledge that's Gnosticism. There's secret knowledge. And the higher up you go in the pyramid, 
The more elite it is, the more powerful this information is. Maybe you've seen the the show on the History Channel, Decoded. I've watched a few of these, and I like them. They're good. But it dawned on me, because I'm preaching through Colossians and my Gnosticism radar is up, these are all Gnostic stories. These are all questions of, of Gnosticism worked into our contemporary culture. The Bible Code is a form of Gnosticism. If you don't know what the Bible Code is, praise God, don't worry about it. The Bible Code essentially is looking for a secret text within the text by counting certain letters over and certain letters down. You keep counting certain letters over and certain letters down on enough pages, and eventually you try to piece it together. So it says something. And if it doesn't say anything, just change the numbers you're counting. Eventually it will. Eventually it'll say something crazy, and you'll go, finally, it's there. It's so arbitrary and unscientific, and yet it's uh, something that you see people be interested in, unfortunately. It's basically Gnostic in its approach to information. Many, many things that, are talk, that talk about the end of the world in 2012 are you know, some sort of secret information that we just now have heard about. And Maybe the world will come to the end in 2012. I don't know. But just keep your ears open for this Gnostic approach to information. Now, maybe a little closer to home for some of you. I wonder if there's something of a similar spirit and interest in more of us just in the passion for the new and the undiscovered. I don't mean scientists who are trying to you know, break this code or, you know, solve this medical mystery or something like that. But I mean, just even the obsession for trying to, well, I'll be honest, I'm sort of a Sasquatch goon. I love Sasquatch documentaries. I mean, every time a new one's on, I record it and watch it and, oh man, I hadn't seen that before. Really? They have DNA? You know, I'm, I just lost all credibility for you, didn't I? (laughs) Just thank the Lord that it's been seven years of me preaching here and I haven't mentioned my Sasquatch passion yet. But here, this will hopefully come underneath that Sasquatch suspicion you have about me and uh, in undergird. I'm going to critique that. Because I wonder if our passion for the new, I wonder if our interest in what's happening with the terrorists and what are they going to do with us and keeping up on that. Or maybe the way... There was much interest about UFOs 40 years ago, 30 years ago, or for some of you in New Mexico, still today, right? I wonder if there's something that, that we have to at least guard, at least guard here, if we are passionately interested in the possibility of the novel and the new so that our old Bibles seem boring to us, we have trouble. We have trouble. We need to approach our Bibles with as much vigor as, well, as some people research UFOs or Sasquatch or terrorism or whatever. This is mysticism. And then Paul also talks about legalism. Another example of this self-made religion is legalism. We talked about it last week. In verse 16, he says, let no one pass judgment on you. And then verse 18 He says, let no one disqualify you. He's talking about unbiblical judgment. And this unbiblical judgment in Colossae had the form of using asceticism as the litmus test or using mysticism as the litmus test. Or, we saw last week, using Jewish legalism, verses 16 and 17, as the litmus test, where some were judging according to the shadows of the Old Testament, which were now fulfilled in Christ, and measuring God's people with perhaps the number of days they kept and the number of laws they followed. Maybe these aren't too close to home for us today, but legalism is alive and well. I said last week we would talk about some more specifics that we struggle with today. Remember last week I, I gave you four kinds of legalism. I'll just review them real quick. One form of legalism is self-salvation, trying to earn your way to God and to get his favor. 
A second kind of legalism is thinking that good deeds are necessary to keep God's favor. You get in by grace, but you're kept in by your good works. A third form of legalism is creating new laws. You love God's law so much, you want to add to it. And so you make up new laws and try to require them of others. And the last kind of legalism is just accentuating obedience, demand, command, and holiness in such a way that the emphasis is on performance and that the tenor of the whole thing is oppressive. Now today I want to get specific with that third kind of legalism I talked about. The third kind of legalism is creating new laws and requiring them of others. There in Colossae, there was the threat of asceticism and mysticism and Jewish legalism. And those are less an issue for us today. But there are many false man-made watermarks that I want to at least reference so that they can be on your radar. And I have a feeling that it's possible this will raise more questions than it will answer. But I'd rather put them on your radar and then have you think it through, you know, think through this issue, think through that issue. Maybe you end up coming out on a different side on it than I have, but these are things for our legalism radar. Issues that are pucker up or duck issues. You mention them, and you can either pucker up or duck, because it's either hated or loved. But these are things that shouldn't be law in our church. Schooling shouldn't be law in our church. Some families choose to homeschool. Some families choose public school. Some families choose the middle way, sort of uh, Christian school. Just think in general of the middle way as, as something that is often good and sometimes dangerous. Not that Christian school is dangerous. I'm not taking a side on this. But in general, you might think, oh, there's an extreme, and then over there's an extreme. I know the right way is always the middle way. So public school, that's extreme. Homeschooling, oh my. But Christian school, <laughs> surely that's God's path. And I could argue using the, the thoughts of a homeschooler or those who do public school. These are things that God has not spelled out specifically in his word. Giving, lifestyle, possessions, how big of a flat screen is okay to buy. These things God has not spelled out in his word. He's given us principles time and time again but he hasn't given us specifics, oftentimes anyway. And where he hasn't given specifics, we can't demand specifics of others. Now, the principles need to be talked about and talked about in love and care and openness and self-improvement, right? So I should learn from your application of biblical principles to your home and to your budget and to your lifestyle, but we may come out on different sides on the specific application of them, the the actual to-dos and the, the limits and the borders. Maybe entertainment is one of these issues. Some of you don't have TV and you're proud of it. And that might be a right path for you and for your family. Maybe in general, you don't listen to secular music and you can't believe others would. Maybe you will never partake of alcohol, even though you know there are some Christians who think that moderately partaking of alcohol, not drunkenness, but moderately partaking of alcohol is permitted and Jesus did it. These are the kind of things where we come to our conclusions and I don't think God's word has been specific enough that we can enforce our conscience upon another. And boy, are there many of these issues in the church and how we do church the way we do music, the style of music, the volume of music, what to wear to church. Now, you look around, Desert Springs Church isn't a traditional church, right? Most of us came in jeans or khakis and maybe a button-up and maybe a t-shirt and flip-flops. We have to be careful that we don't do reverse legalism. 
Here, no one thinks that you have to wear a tie or you're in trouble. You know, no one here thinks you didn't iron your slacks and you came to the Lord's house. Instead, we wonder whether slacks are really that holy at all. I mean, Ryan, you wear jeans. I mean, don't you go wearing slacks now, right? I remember when I first came to Desert Springs, you know, the, the attire is low. It's, I don't mean low like bad, but it's, it, it's right? It's not highbrow, it's lowbrow. So, you know, that's the attire here. And I remember one Sunday, I wore a tie. And someone came up to me and said, what are you doing wearing a tie? We don't wear ties here. And I said, I thought we didn't make up rules that weren't in the Bible. Right? Because that's reverse legalism. That's reverse legalism. I wear a tie every now and then because my wife says that I look hot when I wear a tie. And that's a good thing. I got a Bible verse for that. I, I, I like her to think that I look good. So... My body is her body. She gets to put a tie on it if she wants to, right? Well, we go through a list of other things. Sunday p.m. service, less of an issue here in our church or in New Mexico even, but maybe in the South, that's a bigger issue. This or that program in the church is a must for some. This or that preference about aesthetics or church decor or we always have this. It could be the youth group. Ron was just talking about our youth group and how we do things a little bit differently here. We've had a number of people leave because, well, this isn't the kind of youth group I grew up in. Okay, but we're trying to take biblical principles and apply them in a way that works. The goal is biblical principles worked out in wisdom. But if it gets to the point where our discussion of preferences has now risen to the level where we're violating other biblical commandments, like we're not being unified, we're not being loving, we're being angry with each other, we're being short-tempered, we're being easily offended, all of a sudden now, obviously, we have a problem. Preferences can't rise to the level that all of a sudden now, biblical law, is shooed away or thought to be acceptable. No, passing a plate as opposed to an offering box in the back. Not in the Bible. We take up an offering. We do. We just don't announce it. And if we announced it, it wouldn't be sin. Some of you would think it would be. You would think we're money grubbing, but come on. You can't really point to a Bible verse for that. Here's the issue. Preferences becoming law leads to legalism. You can't legislate your preferences. Let the Bible speak where it does, and let's love each other through those things where it doesn't give us specifics. It's called the liberty of conscience. The Westminster Confession of Faith, written in the 17th century, has a chapter devoted to this. Listen to these words. So well put. God alone is Lord of the conscience and hath left it free from the doctrines and commandments of men which are in anything contrary to his word or beside it in matters of faith or worship so that to believe such doctrines or to obey such commands out of conscience is to betray true liberty of conscience. In other words, God is the God of conscience. And he purposefully hasn't given us specifics in some things. We can't trump that and think that he left something lacking in his word. He has purposes for the liberty of conscience. Now, I see a few different kinds of things going on today related to legalism. And I'll get specific about our church. I think there are three kinds of people in our church, in a sense, as it, comes, as it becomes related to legalism. I think some perhaps grew up in a legalistic church tradition, and they have run in the opposite direction, and that run away is a good thing, but perhaps the pendulum has swung too far. We're now freedom, and sticking it to the man is the goal. And it breeds a kind of lawlessness or a kind of thoughtlessness, or a kind of disrespect for those who have thought about these things more than us young punks have. 
So some defend their actions, I fear, by saying the Bible doesn't give specifics about this specific issue. And they might be right about that. But in the process, I think it's possible that they're clearly ignoring a biblical principle. We have to talk about biblical principles. We need biblical principles put into play and applied somehow, even if we disagree on how those principles will get specifically applied. Another group, I think, is maybe what we would call adults who still haven't yet shed forms of extra-biblical bondage that they inherited from their parents or from their, their childhood pastor. Now, not everyone needs to shed that kind of thing. Not everyone grew up in that kind of tradition. Not everyone has the baggage that I did growing up in a, a very conservative, fundamentalist Baptist tradition. But if you did... You need at some point to learn to test things according to the word of God. You need to have a suspicion about what you've been taught and whether it's merely the commandments of men or the commandments of God. We have to be careful that we, that we don't have a man-made equation, faithfulness equals X, Y, Z, whatever those blanks would be. And then there are some who, I think, never grew up in a legalistic church, and hence, they don't have the taboos of the 1950s. You know, they think dancing's okay and tattoos are fine, but they have never seen the dark side of legalism, and they're not appropriately afraid of it. I think there are some 20-somethings who are appropriately zealous for God and his word and his gospel spreading in this world, and yet they're not as concerned as some who've grown up in a legalistic tradition. They love biblical ideals, but they're willing to get too specific about the application of those ideals. Whether it's giving, how much to give, or lifestyle, spending, whether it's okay to have a second car, how much... How many kids to have, whether to adopt or not, owning a TV, when to retire, and if retirement is legitimate. These can be things that are great questions with the biblical principles available to us in God's word. And God's word hasn't given us specifics, and we should be careful that we don't put them on God's people. All right, now I said that the first point would take a while, and it took longer than I thought, so let's make a run for the end here. Secondly, in your notes, let's talk about the emptiness of self-made religion, because Paul does here in Colossians 2. He says, self-made religion builds on the wrong foundation. It depends on visions and made-up stuff. It leaves no room for mystery, and the made-up stuff is arbitrary. It follows men not Christ. It's reasonless. It's without reason, he says in verse 18. And while it looks conservative, it's actually sensual. While it looks like it's opposing the flesh, it's actually fleshly because the focus is on physical things. It doesn't build upon the gospel, in other words. It builds upon men. It builds upon performance. The gospel says, You are an ascetic by nature. You punish yourself for your sins. Oh, even if you won't flog yourself, you flog your conscience when you sin, thinking that will somehow bring some purity before you pray the next time. We're by nature ascetics. We're by nature legalists. We're by nature mystics. We have one hope, no matter how good we get at the Christian life in this world, we have one hope at the gospel of Christ, and that's the only foundation upon which we can build. Self-made religion leads to all the wrong things. It leads to being puffed up. It leads to a focus on angels and mapping out a spiritual realm such that there's no longer connection with Christ. You see that in verse 19? You can be detached from Christ heading down this path. If the Colossians dabble in this false teaching, at best, it will stunt their growth. At worst, it will mean deserting the head who is Christ altogether. 
It imposes upon others. It's an unhealthy, unbiblical uniformity. It doesn't like the messiness of mere principles with individual conscience application. It leads even to pain. There's one reason why you should avoid this kind of false teaching. It's painful. It's the wrong kind of discipline. It hates joy. It hates enjoyment. It's deceptive. looks wise. It looks serious. It looks freeing. It talks about being free, but really it's, it brings bondage. It's the opposite of freeing us from flesh. There's no power in it, Paul says at the end of verse 23. It can't properly deal with sin because sin is in the heart. The sin isn't a thing, an object that you simply avoid and walk past. Sin is the heart. The heart of the matter is a matter of the heart. That's the emptiness of self-made religion. Now, the third point is the alternative, the elements of real God-given growth. Now, the goal in verse 19, are a few words there, nourishment, health, growth. That's why Paul's writing this letter. That's why he's warning them of these specific things. These things don't give nourishment, health, and growth. These things also, verse 23, don't stop the indulgence of the flesh. So the question remains, how do you get nourishment and health and growth? How do you stop the flesh? Well, a short answer is right there in verse 19. Look at it. Real God-given growth holds fast. It clings to what it already has. It holds to what it already has been given in Christ. Hold fast to the Christ of the gospel. The Christ who died in our place to forgive us of our sins who recognizes that we're hopeless and helpless in ourselves, but he gives us all help and all hope in himself. Keep holding to that. Hold fast to the Christ of his word. Don't make stuff up. Be Bible people. And prove it over and over again. When kids ask questions, say, I don't know, what's the Bible say? Sometimes the Bible won't have the answer. But let your kids know that mom and dad are Bible people. They want to know what the word says. That's their authority. By the way, you can read on in 1 Timothy 4 and see how Paul there talks about confronting the false teaching in that area with holding up the word and teaching the word and repeating the word and not to turn to irreverent, silly myths. Real God-given growth is connected to Christ. He's the head. We're the body. The joints and the ligaments are nourished and growing because they're connected to Christ. Stay connected to Christ. Keep holding on to Christ. And real God-given growth is connected to the body, to the church. That's what Paul's picturing here. A body with parts connected to each other. And if it were a part disconnected from the body, couldn't grow. Now, do you realize how simple the answer is? How complex was the problem? Right? It took us 90% of this morning's message to try to talk about the problem. The problem in Colossae, the problem of Gnosticism 100 years later, and the problem that we have in our churches today is we have various forms of legalism, self-made religion that we're battling. It's a complicated problem. And the solution, the alternative, is as simple as this. Keep standing on the gospel, the gospel you got through the Bible, the gospel which is Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection, and stay tight to the church. Bible, gospel, Christ, church. Repeat until Christ comes back. Now, there's a longer answer to this question of how we get nourishment and health and growth and I, I'm going to ask if you'd bow I'm going to read a bit from Colossians a longer answer would be just to say uh, the rest of the book 
That's how we get nourishment, health, and growth. I'm going to ask you to bow and not listen, uh, and to listen, but not to look down on your Bibles, because in the first century times, this was written to a church, and it would have been read to a church. They would have sat and listened to a large chunk of Bible. I'm not going to read the whole letter of Colossians, but let me read a little bit from chapter 1 and more from chapter 3. May you be strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. If then... You've been raised with Christ. Seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not things that are on the earth, for you've died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So put to death what is earthly in you, Sexual immorality, impurity, passions, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. And in these, you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk. Do not lie to one another seeing that you've put off the old self with its practices and you've put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge of its creator. Here, there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, but Christ is all and in all. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, Bear with one another. And if one is a complaint against another, forgive each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is God's word. 